You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. Now, as I approached uh, the second epistle of the the Thessalonians, it made me think of a a story of when I was young. Uh, When I was young, my family often told me I talked a lot, Um, believe it or not. And so I guess that's why I went into the ministry, so I could keep talking a lot. No. Um, But but one story that I always found interesting or that I've always remembered was one that my uncle would always love to tell. Because he said, I could never believe what a talker you were because there was a time when we were on vacation. We were on a 20-minute drive to this grocery store in the mountains where we were staying. And the whole 20 minutes of the drive, you just talked nonstop. And so when we pulled into the parking lot, I cut you off mid-sentence and said, Robert, we're we're walking into a grocery store. If you could just be quiet while we're shopping, um, then, then you can pick up where we get back in the car, okay? And he said he was very proud of me because it was a 20 or 30 minute trip at the grocery store and I didn't open my mouth. I was good. I stood by his side. We got what we needed. He said, I'll never forget, you picked up where I had cut you off 30 minutes before, (laughs) mid-sentence, and continued right on telling the story. Um, And and, and the reason that came to mind as as I opened 2 Thessalonians, as we begin the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, is not because I'm accusing the Apostle Paul of being too talkative. Uh, The reason it came to mind is I thought that illustration was a helpful reminder of how we should view these two epistles. Uh, Because sometimes we can wonder, how are these epistles related? Um, Are they two independent letters? Uh, uh, Are they very far apart? Are they very spanned out? But no, this is really in, in the opening of the second letter that Paul is writing. We're seeing how closely tied it is to the first. That we're talking about a few months Uh, or a timeline of months that have passed, rather than years, most likely. And and the reason I want to emphasize that, right, as we're looking at this opening chapter of 2 Thessalonians, is is not to take that as an assumption. Uh, For too often, we live in an age of of textual criticism that will call us to doubt whether Paul wrote this letter. And that may very well say, sure, he wrote 1 Thessalonians, but, but I'm not so sure about 2 Thessalonians. And it's important for us to be aware of this, that these kind of criticisms are out there. And and when you really look into them, I encourage you to look into them, because they're unbelievably weak. Uh, Some of the arguments, for instance, made as to why we should say the first is clearly a different author than the second are the following. They cite things like saying the second epistles mentions Paul's signature, but the first one didn't. Or the first sounds more Jewish and this one more Gentile. Or Paul speaks more about the Holy Spirit in the first one than he does in the second letter. Or that the second letter just has a different tone than the first. And so when you hear all of these arguments that claim to be academic and be giving a textual criticism, you start wondering, where where in the world are people coming up with these arguments? And I found one commentary very helpful in destroying these kind of arguments when he said, these are the major internal arguments? None of them are decisive to overcome the overwhelming and clear external evidence for clear Pauline authorship. 
In fact, many of the internal arguments provide little compelling evidence to doubt Paul's authorship of 2 Thessalonians, but instead provide confirmatory evidence for Paul as the author. And as one scholar, Kim Riddlebarger, would go on to say after citing this quote, critical method is utter subjectivity. It's a claim that often likes to pretend it's being scholastic, but it's purely subjective. For here, at the opening of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, we're seeing how clearly this is following the first. And I certainly hope, beloved, that this is something you take for granted. Um, I hope it's something that I, I, you're, you're thinking, why is he spending so much time on this? Let's move on, because we all know this is God's holy, inspired, and errant word. But sometimes it's important to pause and consider this and not take it for granted. To realize that as Paul opens this letter, he's not just saying hello, but he's saying hello again. He's clearly picking up right where he left off in his first letter to the Thessalonians. And so in this opening chapter, we can ask, well, how exactly do we see this, that he's picking up where he left off? And I'd say in three key ways, because in this opening chapter, we're seeing an echoing opening first. Um, And then secondly, we see how he returns to the end of time's exhortation. And then third and finally, he returns to the power of prayer. So those will be the three points we're considering from this text, this Lord's Day. Uh, Right from the start, I say there's an echoing opening when we look at the first four verses of this passage, because he's echoing the same opening of authorship, the same opening greeting, and the same opening of thanks that he had given in the first epistle. Um, I say there's very similar opening of authorship, quite identical uh, if you look back to 1 Thessalonians, for Paul, who is the author, lists those who were with him. Uh, The same exact trio is listed, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And we shouldn't miss the point that that right from the start we're seeing validity in this letter. It's showing how closely knit it is to the first one. An echo of that first trio is given once more. And I say the opening uh, trio is not only key to point to the validation of, of Paul's authorship and the same trio being present, but I say also the proximity of these two letters being together. That a good argument is that these three are still together when the second letter came means we're talking about a time period most likely of months rather than years between the two letters. And so that opening authorship is right away very helpful to echo back to 1 Thessalonians. And the same can be said about the greeting he gives. For when you look at the greeting in the opening two verses, he says, "...to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace." Now, this is uh, almost the same exact opening he gives in the first letter to the Thessalonians, Um, but but there is a very unique aspect to that because this is the only way uh, we see Paul greet um, in this way, is in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And and by that, I mean that there's a lot that's in common amongst other Pauline epistles. There's many a letter where Paul says, in the name of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many a letter where Paul says grace and peace to you, but usually it's grace and peace to you in the name of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only to the Thessalonians where he addresses the church as those who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's a community who is tied to the divine Lord. Um, and, and so I'd say in, it's a, an important lesson being given to the church in Thessalonica in a very unique way. 
And then even where the first two letters are similar, there is a difference in this second letter that's all the more familial, and I'd say all the more familiar. Um, it's all the more familial because the one key difference between First and Second Thessalonians is when, when Paul gives that statement of greetings, he, he says, in the name of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice here in this verse, it's in the name of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that may seem like a whole lot of nothing, but the difference between the and our is pretty, pretty uh, uh, huge. He, he's pointing the truth that this isn't just the objective, true, divine God I'm referring to. He's yours. He's ours. He's our Heavenly Father. And so, what a wonderful familial greeting. And that is much more common in the greetings that Paul would write to the church, giving all the more validity to this letter. For, for we don't assemble, beloved, ever, just to be educated by the truths of ancient history or to learn about the, the divine mysteries that God has shown in his word as just sort of some math lessons. We're coming together to worship our Father as his children for the sake of his only begotten Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what a beautiful point that we shouldn't miss in that one simple word, are. That he's telling the Thessalonians that truth, that they're a part of the family of God. It's more familial, but it's also more familiar um, because in, in this letter, unlike 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Paul doesn't just cut off at grace to you in peace. He reiterates from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So twice over he says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Addressing the church and applying this statement of, of grace and peace that is being given to them. And so to do so makes this a, a much more familiar greeting that, that we see accompanying many of Paul's letters. Where the blessing itself is attached to the Father and the Son. And I say, what a great reminder that that statement is, much more familiar that we find in other epistles of his, because it's showing who the God of Scripture is. How, how this blessing of grace and peace applies to, to coming from both the Father and the Son, that they're inseparable. It's not just grace from the Father and peace from the Son, though from time to time you may find that, that statement being made as a distinction of, of the persons in the Trinity. But, but here, it, the, the more common theme is to show the divinity of Christ by giving both the blessings of grace and peace coming from both the Father and the Son, together, united. And, and so we shouldn't miss that point in this familiar greeting that it's showing us the very divine identity of the one who Paul is writing from and giving greetings from. And, and then besides that, there's also an echo in the way he opens by expressing thanks. Um, in the same way you, you find him giving thanks for this church in 1 Thessalonians, he's still giving thanks for them at the outset of 2 Thessalonians. He's giving thanks to God, and, and he's giving a thanks that boasts. Um, he's giving thanks to God for them. There's much in verses 3 and 4 that are showing us how thankful Paul is for the church in Thessalonica, as we'll consider in a moment. He's even boasting about them. But, but at the opening of his statement of thanks... Uh, we're once more given a powerful reminder, for it's in the same way he gives thanks at the opening of 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2. It's thanks to who? Thanks to God. And that's such an important point to see right at the opening of this statement. Um, it's an important teaching moment to the Thessalonica church, and, and for us still today as a church, 
that whatever we're thankful for as a body of believers gathering together, whether we're like Thessalonica, growing abundantly, or, or just increasing in love for each other, or being steadfast in the faith, or, or even facing persecution well, in any of these things, thanks is to be given to whom? To God. Uh, he is the source of it all. And that's a, a real teaching moment that Paul is giving once more in this opening address of thanks. But it's also striking how in verse 4, he, he sort of steps it up a notch by saying, I'm boasting. You know, we're boasting for you. The phrase, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. And, and that one word of boasting is, is one that may make us really pause for a moment and wonder, is that really proper? Uh, did Paul not give this to the editor? Are we really supposed to be boasting about each other? But I say this is a great reminder and a teaching moment of what Christian boasting is or what Christian boasting should be. It's being proud of something that is truly giving glory to God. It's being proud of, of what the Lord has done. And I'd say it's fair to imagine that when Paul would be boasting about the Thessalonians to other churches, it would not sound like the callous way we think of boasting. You know, you should all be a lot more like the Thessalonians. Why can't you be like Thessalonica? The Thessalonians would be ashamed of how you're all acting here. You know, for Paul to say he's boasting about the Thessalonians, or the church in Thessalonica, means he's boasting in the power of the Lord. Look what God is doing in Thessalonica. In the face of suffering, look how God is preserving his church amongst the Thessalonians. Oh, may the Spirit work in us and how he is working in the Thessalonian church. And what a good teaching moment this is as well, beloved, that there's such a big difference between worldly boasting and Christian boasting. When we see this word, we often think of the idea of worldly boasting, boasting in what ourselves and what our own hands have done. But it's a good reminder that Christ's church really has nothing to boast about but him. And what a key reminder we need. It puts things in perspective as Christ's church. Whether we find ourselves in a place where new, ch new church plants seem to be starting up every week, or in an area where church plants seem stagnant, a mission field that seems rejected, or whether our church is doubling, quadrupling in size, we need to build a new building, or our church begins to shrink because as Christians we're being thrown in jail for holding to the truth of God's word. You know, in any and all of these situations, we as Christians can still say we may boast when we see the Lord is at work. We may boast that he is using us, even if we don't seem to have much to boast in ourselves. And Paul shows this very clearly by giving thanks to them in such a way for even in the midst of the struggles they were facing in the here and now. And in the second letter, he immediately picks up where he left off to encourage the, this church that was suffering, but by jumping to his end times of exhortation, which is the second point for us to consider together this Lord's Day. Now that, that's how I say you're, you're seeing the connection between these two letters so clearly. And, and I think the second point is what, what I most want to point out as fitting to talkative young Robert, uh, who was cut off and picked right back up. Because if you look back to 1 Thessalonians, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, uh, to, to chapter 5, verse 11, um, Paul is dealing exclusively with the end of times, 
what it means with the coming of Christ, his return. And then he gives his concluding greetings, sort of, how, how most epistles end, his concluding statements. Well, after these first opening four verses of greetings in 2 Thessalonians, what does he pick right back up in? Talking about the end of times. He wants to make sure the Thessalonian church understands what it means when Christ, our Savior, will return. And so we're finding the continuity between these two epistles just in the very body in which Paul picks up this topic once more. And I say that because some honestly have tried to, to doubt Paul's authorship by giving that argument that the mood of these two epistles seems somewhat different. Well, yeah, he's, he's skipped chapters 1 through 3, and he's picked right back up in chapter 4. So the tone is going to be a little different than we find in the first epistle. An absurd argument. You know, if our mood or tone of all our conversations had to be the same to validate who we are, I think each and every one of us would be split personalities then, Right? Uh, we, we don't all share the same mood and tone in each word we say. And here, the reason that Paul's uh, second letter may seem more anxious or energetic is because he's immediately returning to the idea of eschatology, the end of times. And in, these opening, uh, in this opening chapter from verses 5 to 10, he's pointing to the very comfort of judgment as well as the comfort of glory. Um, now, now, when I say the comfort of judgment, I mean the description he's giving in verses 6, 8, and 9. In verse 6, we're told about the Lord paying back trouble for trouble. In verse 8, he's pointing us to punishment for all who do not know God and receive the good news of Christ. In verse 9, he's speaking of everlasting destruction and being shut from the Lord's presence. And I say, what, what a reminder we continually need, beloved, on this side of glory. For it's a reminder that we are worshiping a just God. And I say there are times where we can become so overwhelmed with the sin and misery of the day that we forget statements like this from Paul. We forget that we are told time and again that our Lord is coming. He's returning as a righteous judge. But in this introductory statement, there can be no mistake. The Lord will repay punishment for sin. He will reject those who reject him. And he will abandon them, for they will only know his just wrath. And I say to reflect on that, it may sound odd to say there's comfort in his judgment. But, but the reason that we should realize this is a statement of comfort that Paul is giving is it's comfort in difficult times when we can feel like the Lord's enemies are winning the day. I say indeed it encourages us as those who can remember the war is over. Uh, Christ has already won the war. He proclaimed it is finished. He conquered the very power of the grave. He conquered sin and misery. He's crushed the serpent's head. The war is over and victory has been accomplished. And even though we are in the midst of battle still, we need to remember that the war has been won. And that can be so helpful when we're seeing the end of times when the triumphant king returns to point us to this truth. It helps us not to have such anger or ire towards our enemies and more empathy, more of a desire to evangelize, more of a realization of what they have in store who stand against the truth of the king of kings. We who fear the Lord have no reason to fear our enemies, beloved. For the Lord clearly gives his church comfort with the certainty of the judgment in store. But I say even more so for us, it's not just judgment that we're looking to that can give comfort, but glory. 
The the reason we can have comfort when we're hearing these words of our, our Lord's return is there is comfort for we who belong to Him. Uh, There's comfort in the midst of suffering, and there's comfort that suffering will end. Uh, In verse 5, the church is told, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, to be clear, Paul's not telling the Thessalonians, nor us, that that our suffering is a work we must attain, right? He's not saying, good job, suffering. There's so many churches that aren't suffering. I wish they'd get out there and start suffering. Um, Rather, he's putting our Christian walk in a proper perspective. He's preparing us and calling us to understand Christian suffering when it does come. And I wanted to read a quote from a good commentator, Leon Morris, where I thought he captured the meaning of this verse very well, the idea of suffering. He said, To us, the fact of suffering seems to deny rather than to prove that God is working out his righteous purpose. And when we have those thoughts, we need to realize that the New Testament does not look on suffering in quite the same way as do most modern people. To us, suffering in itself can be an evil, something to be avoided at all costs. And while the New Testament doesn't gloss over this aspect of suffering, it doesn't lose sight either of the fact that in the good providence of God, suffering is often the means of working out God's eternal purpose. It develops in the sufferers qualities of character. It teaches valuable lessons. Suffering's not thought of as something which may possibly be avoided by the Christian. For Paul, it's inevitable. That's a good reminder. I found that quote very helpful to remind us of the concept of Christian suffering, how on this side of glory, beloved, we must never be shocked by it and always prepared for it, ready for the day that to do nothing more than say, I am a Christian, I believe in the triune God, and I am a follower of Christ my Lord, could mean we're headed to prison. And the reason I say this is a comfort is whenever we suffer, we're also reminded that this suffering will end. It's the idea that we're aliens, we're sojourners, we're travelers on a journey. And after making this point of encouragement to them in verse 5, he's showing them that your suffering will end in verses 7 and 10. In verse 7, he's pointing to the relief for we who are troubled that our Lord and his angels shall come. In verse 10, the Thessalonians and we too are reminded that we are included as those who will glorify him. And I say, beloved, this has meaning for us, not just in that day when he shall come again, but it has meaning for us today. It puts all things in perspective in our lives. You know, I thought of this last week when I saw an interview with some college softball players who were asked about how they were handling the pressure to keep the joy they had playing softball as they were preparing to play in the College World Series. You know, they were undefeated, and everybody was out to get them. And so the question was asked in this press conference, um, where do you get joy in playing when there's so much pressure on you? And the answer was shocking. One student answered, no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy or not, this isn't our home. We have an eternity of joy with our Father. And I'm so excited about that. Yes, I live in the moment, but this isn't my home. And no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be with me in the end when we're with our king. And as I looked at this text, that quote just so struck me. For for first of all, it shocked me that it was in a press conference on network TV. But secondly, it struck me as I thought about Paul's words to the Thessalonians, how greatly it captured that concept. 
What a great example of how the comfort of glory was truly being on display. That while the question itself was trying to consume this college student, how are you not just so ravaged by the idea of playing softball with so much pressure upon you? She gave the answer, I'm not consumed by this. Not by the press, not by the game, not by the pressure. For I have my eyes fixed on the king of kings. And don't we all need that reminder, beloved? And isn't that the reminder that Paul is giving in this passage? For so often we are tempted to be consumed with the here and the now. Where has my notoriety gone? I'm concerned with how my finances are doing. What is that latest health report looking like? And what am I going to do about it? But beloved, when we remember the relief we have in store, when we shall be glorifying our Savior forevermore, it by no means makes questions of notoriety or finance or health meaningless, but it puts them in perspective. We're reminded why we are taking every step on this side of glory as those traveling to, to Jerusalem on high, a new Jerusalem, the, the King of kings at his throne to be worshiping him in glory forevermore. And I think it's very fitting that when Paul gives us that, that great statement of comfort, he points us then to the power of prayer, which is our third and final point to consider. You know, it's very fitting that after focusing on Christ's return, he's really showing us how, how wonderful and powerful prayer is. And in fact, he's really bookending this section, we could say, because he's opened, in a sense, with a prayer of thanks in verse 3. And after pointing the Thessalonians to glory, he returns them to prayer in the here and now, in verses 11 and 12. And he's showing us its power. The power of persistence, the power of God's will, and the power of God's glory. I, I say the power of persistence in how he opens up verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you. That, that continual aspect, that constancy of prayer that he's pointing to, is reminding them of the first letter he wrote. For 1 Thessalonians begins in the same way, saying, I'm praying for you. And 1 Thessalonians ends with him saying, please pray for us. And so here he is in 2 Thessalonians again, saying, always be praying. Uh, what, what, this constant gift or this constant tool that we've given cannot be missed, beloved. For, for Paul to say, we've constantly been praying for you, is not a braggadocious statement. Just like saying we boast about you was not a braggadocious statement. Pa Paul here is, is saying, I am persistent constantly praying, because to, to say we're constantly praying is never pointing to the greatness of our work. It's a constant reminder of how the Lord is listening, and the Lord is at work, and the Lord has said, call out to me, for I'm always listening. And so may we hear a statement like this whenever Paul says, I'm always or constantly praying, and be reminded of what a gift we've been given, that the Holy Spirit is at work in us when we're praying to the Lord whether in a, in a momentary prayer or when we're devoting hours to prayer, it's something that the Lord has given us the ability to do and called us to do. And we find that, that Paul, as he's doing this, praying continually, he's pointing us all the more to the power of God's purpose and the power of God's glory. I, I say the power of God's purpose at the end of verse 11, where he says, Our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power. Here in his request, his constant prayer is calling us to see God's power to call and God's power to fulfill. 
And I liked how one commentary makes the point that, that sometimes when we see these statements of Paul's prayer, Paul's not only sharing with them that he's praying, but he's using it as a teaching moment to, to let them know what they should be pursuing and to let them know what they should be praying for. He's really instructing them to follow God's calling, to walk in his ways, to have faith by his power. And if we make the argument that Paul's instructing them with these statements on prayer, well, then the same can be said about verse 12. For he's also showing us the very power of God's glory. In the final words, he's saying, So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. He's asking that, that a church who has received grace in Christ may glorify that name of Christ. And may this ever be our prayer request, beloved, as a body of believers to exalt and glorify our Lord and Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, May we hear this request and receive it as instruction, asking that the Lord would work in us in all we say and do, and even in what we think, to glorify the very name that we carry as Christians. And what better way to do it than how we are here, coming together right now, worshiping and praising our Savior. And while we may have a, a bit bigger of a break than, than 20 or 30 minutes in the grocery store, um, when we only meet week to week, it's a good reminder that when we come together like this, it has that same constancy. As the way Paul just keeps picking up the conversation of the Thessalonians, what a blessed way to think of this when we come together as a body of believers. We may take a break, but we come back together next week and the week after that and the week after that, looking forward to the day when there will be no more break, when there will be the eternal Sabbath and we can worship our Lord forevermore. And until that day, beloved, may we come together every Lord's Day to worship him, trusting in the power of his word that continues to echo, using that very power of prayer as we call out to him and having full confidence that he shall come again to judge the living and the dead, though we may suffer here for a while. Glory be to Christ our Lord. Let us turn to our Heavenly Father for his sake and pray to him.